courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we'll take a look at the ongoing American cultural revolution with one of its most powerful critics. Now, it's not an exaggeration to say that for the last decade or so, the United States and some other Western countries have been in the steadily tightening grip of a rising and revolutionary ideology. Call it what you will, progressive, woke, postmodern, successor ideology. But it is without doubt upending and indeed dismantling the values and principles upon which this country was founded. At its core is the idea that American civilization as we've known it is fundamentally illegitimate. The product of race, gender, and sexuality-based oppression by white men, principally, that shaped all aspects of the nation's culture, economy, and politics. It calls for a total overhaul of American institutions and society to ensure so-called equity of outcomes. As I wrote this week in my journal column, this ideology disowns America's genius, denounces its success, disdains merit, elevates victimhood, embraces societal self-loathing, and enforces it all in a web of exclusionary and authoritarian rules, large and small. So how did we succumb to this revolution? How much further can it go? And what could be done to resist it? Well, to talk about this, I'm delighted to be joined this week by one of the most forceful critics of this rising ideology, Heather MacDonald. Heather's a leading conservative commentator, among the most thoughtful analysts of the various pathologies of modern American life. She's developed a particular expertise in crime and urban affairs, but she writes widely about social and political matters. She's a fellow of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to the Institute's City Journal. She's widely published, and she has a brand new book out this week called Race Trump's Merit. How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. And Heather McDonald joins me now. Heather, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Jerry, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. And let's start with defining the terms of this cultural revolution that you talk a lot about in the book, that you and I have discussed in the past, and we, it occupies our minds. Um, so let's, let's, let's start by defining the terms. And I think what's really helpful in terms of your book um, your book uh, says how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty and threatens lives. Let's talk about that concept of equity. Explain, if you would, for us what it means, how it differs from ideas of equality and what it amounts to in practice. Well, equity is the expectation that every institution should have an exact racial proportion in it that matches the population at large. And it holds that the only allowable explanation for that lack of racial proportionality is racism. So, for instance, Jerry, if Google's tech workforce of computer scientists and engineers is not 13 percent black, which is the population at large in, in, in the U.S. is 13 percent black, the only allowable explanation is that Google is discriminating against qualified black computer scientists or engineers. Or if a cancer research lab is not 13% black oncologists, the only allowable explanation for that underrepresentation of blacks is racism. And so we have decided that in order to engineer this racial proportionality, 
we will get rid of whatever meritocratic standards stand in the way of of that equitable outcome. But the fact of the matter is that what is not allowed to be said is that it is not racism that explains that lack of racial proportionality. Our standards are not racist. Our standards are not the problem. There are large academic skills gaps, which mean that you can either have meritocracy or you can have diversity or equity. You cannot have both. And you point out in the book exactly to this point. that So when, as you say, certain racial minorities are underrepresented in whether it's professions or um, academic positions or whatever else it is, the standards then under the sort of new rules by which we operate, the standards have to be changed. So we have to get rid of standardized testing. We have to get rid of minimal educational or professional criteria in order for people to have these jobs. As you say, it's essentially, it's the dismantling of the very idea of merit, isn't it? It's profoundly nihilistic. The gatekeepers of our most esteemed and cherished institutions have declared a war on excellence. They have to assert that there is, in fact, no objective difference in skills. And that is preposterous because they have double standards. At the same time that they are tearing down meritocratic standards on behalf of so-called underrepresented minorities or people of color, which is basically Blacks and Hispanics, they are holding whites and Asians to, and especially Asians, to ever-increasing demands. So they're calculating Asians' SATs or LSATs or medical school admissions test scores to the point, oh, 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 one percent. I mean, you can't even put in enough zeros there because they actually know that when it comes to whites and Asians, these standards do matter. Now, Jerry, if I can just put in a disclaimer here, because I know that for many people, it is extremely uncomfortable to be talking about these racial skills gaps that, you know, white Americans are of such goodwill, they turn their eyes away. I'm talking about group averages. I'm not talking about any given individual. There are thousands of individuals in these groups that are outperforming the groups with higher group averages. So there's thousands of blacks who are outperforming whites and Asians. You can't know anything about any given individual, but we have to be talking about these group averages because the discourse of anti-racism deals with group averages and group outcomes. And so if we want to fight back and preserve Western civilization, sorry, we have to swallow hard and talk about the data. Just to be abundantly clear, we're not either talking here and you're not talking in your book about innate differences in ability. And there are sort of racialized theories of educational academic ability. There are very controversial theories around that. You're not talking about that. You're saying that it is a fact that, as we can see, whether it's on whether we're talking about things like educational scores, academic scores, whether we're talking about the incidence of crime, it just is a statistical fact that certain minorities, African-Americans in particular, as you say, on average, perform less well on academic scores than whites and Asians in particular, and are more represented, if you like, in levels of crime. And you talk about this a little bit in the book too. That Again, just to be clear, we're not, again, this is not because of some innate characteristics. There are deeper, if you like, sort of deeper societal and social reasons that probably explain some of these things. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well, I would not say societal. I would say cultural. At this point, I do not blame society. I will say with utter lack of any kind of restraint or apology that America's history was appalling. It was appallingly hypocritical. Whites' treatments of blacks for decades was heartbreakingly, gratuitously cruel 
nasty, mean-spirited. That lasted into the 1950s. The behavior of Southerners in the 1950s is simply stunning to behold. We are not that country any longer, Jerry. We can acknowledge both that we were in grotesque violation of our ideals and that we have done a 180-degree turn. Right now, the reality of our world is, frankly, Black privilege, not white privilege. I don't know of a single Black high school student applying to college who would even think of listing his race as white because he thinks that would give him an advantage. But if I were a heterosexual white male and I thought I could get away with it, I would be sorely tempted to put my race down as black because that would give me an enormous advantage in getting admitted. But I would say that the problems today are not societal. We are not systemically racist. We are not discriminating against blacks. The problem is cultural in the family, in the black inner city family. Now you have an ethic that says that to exert academic effort is to act white Black students who put out an effort are stigmatized. The parents or single parents are not paying much attention to whether their students are going to school. The truancy rate for Blacks is, in California, it's four times higher than that of whites. You better believe it is much, much higher than that of Asians. I have observed inner city schools. The students in those classrooms are not paying attention to their teachers. They don't take their textbooks home to study. The parents are not looking to see whether the students are at home at night studying, not running the streets. These are difficult things to talk about, Jerry, but the time for racial etiquette is over because we are now dismantling our institutions on the false premise that it is they that are to blame for racial disparate outcomes, not culture. Let's just quickly dig into this issue of you know societal or social versus cultural. Because, and let me play devil's advocate here a little bit, because you've acknowledged, as everybody must acknowledge, that American history, when it comes to race and the treatment of racial minorities, is a pretty bleak and baleful one from, obviously, from slavery through you know, Reconstruction and the post-Civil War period, obviously Jim Crow, you know, and then obviously tremendous progress has been made in the last 50 years, civil rights movement in the 1960s, a lot of progress towards in things like affirmative action, but also just generally broader economic and social progress. But it, it would be hard to deny, would it not, that with all of that legacy of, of that history of discrimination that the United States clearly has, that the legacy of that would not still weigh down in various ways on minorities. And again, whether that itself explains some of the cultural challenges that you talk about and some of the cultural pathologies that you talk about. Again, I think even those people who are very alarmed by this idea of equity and very alarmed, you know, as you and I are, by some of the things that are said, given the long history in America of racial discrimination, that it's probable that some of that history would continue to be reflected in the way, in attitudes, in approaches, in expectations, in all of those things in ways that could adversely affect black people. You know, in one sense, it really doesn't matter because whatever your causal explanation is, at this point, the only thing that can close those achievement gaps is self-help and effort on the part of blacks. Somebody outside cannot teach somebody to read. You have to do the, the effort yourself. Obviously, we teach, we have teachers that teach, but to actually master reading or to master mathematics, the individuals have to make that effort themselves. There's nothing somebody from the outside can do. So whether or not these habits now of anti-intellectualism and the pathological rap culture, I mean, that of misogyny, of glorifying violence, of glorifying drug use, guns, 
shooting cops, if that somehow whites are to blame for that, the only people who get outside of that culture are the people within it. But I would argue that it's not necessarily a clean, linear line back to slavery because through the 1940s and 1950s, you had within segregated Black communities, Black institutions that were trying to promote bourgeois values. And we can see these heartbreaking pictures of Ella Fitzgerald or Duke Ellington dressed to the nines conforming to bourgeois standards of dress and behavior and still getting beaten down. And in Chicago in the 1950s, the newspapers were promoting middle-class values, you know, stay in school, don't have children out of wedlock. That changed in the 1960s and 1970s with the press of integration. The oppositional culture rose up, but that was not necessarily a product of segregation. It was a product of something else. But as I say, in one sense, it really doesn't matter. Even if you want to say that somehow slavery is what's giving us now the ethic of drive-by shootings, the only people who can change that ethic are, are from within the culture. So let's talk again about how this revolution, in the, when it really is a relatively recent revolution in the last 10 years or so, it's obviously been building for some time in the last 10 years, so how it really came about. Again, you talk in the book about the importance of that famous summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, and then the, the sort of the broad acceptance, it seems, of these radical ideas of equity, meaning equalizing outcomes rather than opportunities. Give us a sense of how we came to this. And let me start by asking you this. Does it in some ways reflect the failure of affirmative action? Because obviously affirmative action, the very idea of affirmative action was that it was intended to redress these imbalances that existed in society and to give opportunities to people obviously, again, particularly ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans, who maybe did not have the opportunities, the advantages that, that other people had, they were given this opportunity, and whether it was in university admissions, or whether it was in indeed in you know in government employment or government programs, they were given these opportunities. And yet somehow, as you've described it, it hasn't resulted in you know, significantly improving uh, academic performance by African-Americans. It hasn't really significantly resulted in changing fundamentally kind of economic imbalances. How did we get, if you like, then from affirmative action to this idea of equity? Well, I think that's a, an astute comment, Jerry. I would make just one correction. I prefer them racial preferences because there's some people out there who are still so naive that when they hear affirmative action, and I don't think you're one of them because you did talk about preferences. They think that all it means is doing outreach, you know, and making sure that you're advertising for a job in black newspapers or black media and being as broad as possible in trying to find people to apply for a job. That is not what it ever meant. From the very start, it was about double standards and preferences. And it was absolutely foreseeable that that the racial preferences, the double standards would not work. But we now have the empirical data to explain why. When you admit people with double standards, you create something that is known in the literature as mismatch. And let's take this out of the race issue, Jerry. If MIT admitted me because it, it wanted to have sex diversity or gender diversity, and it had sex preferences, and I had 600 on my math SATs on an 800-point scale, and my peers who were admitted without sex preferences had 800s on their math SATs, 
I would probably flunk freshman calculus and I would struggle throughout. I would not catch up. But the diversity bureaucracy would be ready to hand to tell me that I was the victim of misogyny and rape culture and a sexist world against me. The same thing happens with blacks who are admitted under racial preferences, which is basically at every selective school today. They are admitted into an academic environment for which they're not competitive. That's not to say that they would not be competitive in many other academic environments, but they are routinely catapulted into academic environments where they have lower average accomplishments and skill levels and they struggle. It's perfectly predictable. It's in one sense, not their fault. They are being given a handicap in being catapulted into these environments where everybody else has a standard deviation higher academic skill level as measured by the SATs. They don't catch up. In fact, you know, one of the excuses that is made for racial preferences as well, the SATs are biased. If the SATs were biased, here's what would happen. Blacks would outperform their SAT scores when admitted. In fact, they underperform their SAT scores. They do not catch up. So yes, racial preferences have not closed the academic skills gap. If anything, they exacerbate it. Here's what we know about law school admissions, Jerry. Again, law schools employ massive racial preferences. What happens after their first year of law school? Law school first year exams are all colorblind, The students write their blue books. The teacher has no idea who has written those blue books. The black students on a national sample of tens of thousands of grades, 51% of black law students end up at the bottom 10% of their law school classes. Two thirds of black law students after their first year end up at the bottom 20% of their law school classes. That is not a recipe for eliminating racial stereotypes. Difficult, Heather, is it to talk about these things? It's interesting. I mean, you work for an institute which fortunately encourages free speech and, of course, is conservative leaning and certainly encourages people to explore conservative ideas and challenge kind of existing orthodoxies. And I'm fortunate enough to work for the Wall Street Journal editorial page where I'm given that freedom. But but even to articulate the kind of things you're saying here about fundamental, if you like, differences in academic standards between blacks and whites, there are many, many, many institutions in this country from media institutions to obviously academic institutions and increasingly corporations where even to posit the possibility that the disparity of outcome is not the result of racial discrimination is more or less forbidden, isn't it? This is, I think, what's so scary to some extent about this discussion, that you and I can have this discussion, and you can have this in other fields too, but in places where these discussions probably really need to be had, university campuses and media newsrooms and corporate boardrooms and elsewhere, it's hard, if not impossible, to have this conversation. Jerry, you are absolutely right. As a practical matter right now, facts are now racist. You may not utter these terms. It is quite incredible. We are simply giving the facts and that is racist. And that's not just in left-wing organizations. It's true in conservative organizations as well. But here's the next step in this, Jerry. At some point, we're not going to get access to those facts. This is my analysis for why massive college systems like the University of California have not just made the SATs optional, they have prohibited them from being submitted at all. This is otherwise a puzzling phenomenon because you would think 
given that schools already what's known as race norm, this is a term that came about in the 1990s when we were observing that meritocratic institutions simply had two set of standards for objective tests. They would have one curve for Blacks and Hispanics on the one hand, and another curve for whites and Asians, and a SAT score that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white and Asian would be an automatic admit score for Blacks and Hispanics. In other words, the curves were normed according to racial group. Why wouldn't the University of California want to continue that practice? Because it gives them information in both groups. You want to know who's the top. So why are they prohibiting them? Because they want to put the college board out of existence. The college board with its objective, colorblind, neutral tests provide us with data that allows us to fight back against the racism charge and say that, no, the problem is the skills gaps. And in policing, we're going to see this as well. It gets harder and harder to get your hands on data that gives evidence of the massive crime gap. And so at some point, not only is it going to be taboo to bring up these facts, it will be impossible to bring up these facts. And, you know, it's also the case, isn't it? And and some prominent black commentators have pointed this out, too, that this claim that any disparity of outcome, particularly in academic schools, is somehow a reflection of racist educational systems or testing systems. This itself kind of patronizes and infantilizes blacks. The idea that math is, you know, this is now quite common, that math is racist, that the teaching of history is fundamentally racist, and that the reason that black scores on average, again, let's make sure we stress the average here, that on average black score lower on these is somehow because they're somehow incapable under the system they have because the system is so racist of achieving that. That itself is incredibly patronizing. First of all, as you say, we're talking about averages. Lots of black students do manage to score extremely well and do exceptionally well academically. So this idea that somehow it actually patronizes so many African-Americans by essentially saying to them, actually, you know what, you're not capable of understanding math or calculus or physics in the way that other people are. It's infantilizing, isn't it? Jerry, I could not agree more. I'm going to confess something and expose myself to the usual accusations here, but I do get weary of the demand lower standards on our behalf. How about you meet the standards? How about you put out the effort to meet the standards? But that is the universal cry, not universal, excuse me, I correct myself. As you say, there are black leaders who are making the argument of effort, of meeting standards, of excelling, of beating everybody else at their own game. But there are way too many black leaders that that is the race hustle that are saying lower standards on our behalf. And that that should be embarrassing. You know, when Jews were discriminated against and kept out of the Ivy League and kept out of banks and kept out of country clubs, here's what they did. They said, "Okay, we'll both create our own institutions and we will become so good that if you want to compete, if you want a competitive edge, you will have to hire us. And the people who don't hire us because they are so benighted and so anti-Semitic that they would rather be preserve their wasp purity then then have like the most capable quant in their investment firm they will suffer the consequences let the market take care of this but there needs to be jerry a sea change in the way that many black leaders leverage power right now the race hustle is prevalent and guilty whites 
capitulate to the phony charge that they're racist and that the most preposterous charge is that what puts black lives at risk is whites. Excuse me, blacks die of gun homicide between the ages of 10 and 24 at 25 times the rate of whites. The people who are killing those black gun homicide victims are not white. They're not the police. It's other blacks. And yet we're all going around with this fiction that walking while black or existing while black, the people that are putting those black lives at risk is whites. It's absurd. So how about you meet the standards? And we've seen the tragic irony of that, haven't we, in the light of the Black Lives Matter protests a few years ago and the kind of retreat of police forces, the defund the police movement, the retreat of police forces from a lot of frontline policing. And of course, what's happened has resulted in a big increase in murders in many major cities like Chicago, uh, New York, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, elsewhere, and who have been the principal victims of that, almost exclusively the victims of that, black people. So the idea that this is somehow a problem that is somehow entirely created by white people, I mean, the irony again with Black Lives Matter is, of course, a lot of those activists who did a lot of that were themselves white. But I want to move on quickly to the implications of this new ideology, the sort of practical ideology. And again, I think the subtitle of your book captures it very, very well. You say the pursuit of equity, sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty and threatens lives. We've talked about sacrificing excellence. Just tell us briefly, if you would, why you say it destroys beauty. Well, we have the leaders of our greatest art institutions, whether it's art museums, classical music, theater, that have now decided that their main function in life is to be anti-racist. And so they're going around impugning their the traditions that it should be their supreme privilege to curate. They should be down on their knees before the grandeur of classical music or the magnificent of of the western art tradition the dutch baroque uh, john singer sergeant none of us deserve these works but now they've decided that because they were created by white people because europe was demographically white that's simply the history get over it they are hanging museum posters wall texts around saying please see this gorgeous still life from the dutch a golden age Baroque as a function of colonialism, or please hear this work of music as simply a function of racism because it was composed by a white male who just happened to be a genius, whether it's Bach or Chopin or Schubert. And they are teaching young people to hate the greatest works of Western civilization based on nothing more substantial than the trivialities of race and sex. We'll take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Heather McDonald on the revolutionary ideas about race that have upended America in the last few years. Stay with us. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Heather McDonald. We're talking about the issues raised in her new book, Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Are we, and again, I'm as guilty of it as if it's true as you are, are we in slight danger of overstating 
the challenge here. I mean, I can still go into the great museums of New York near where I live, and I can still go in and see the great artists, the masters, the Dutch masters, the Italian Renaissance, all of the, you know, that we, I can still order on Amazon the great works of literature. Again, those who defend this approach would say, look, we're not cancelling Shakespeare or Holbein or Caravaggio. We're simply saying, look, there's a context to how they came about. And there are other forms of artistic expression that our children, our students, are as a society, we should be learning more about. Is there a danger that we're sort of slightly overstating the, the extent to which this culture is being cancelled? No, if you can still see those things without the phony prism of anti-racism, it's just because they haven't gotten around to it yet, Jerry. I mean, you can go right now to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and go to their rehanging of their Dutch masters and read those wall texts. The Metropolitan Museum of Art just had a, a show uh, built around a bust of a black enslaved woman by a, a French 19th century sculptor, Jean-Baptiste Carpeau. This is a work of abolitionist art. It is a work of a, a supreme empathy, sympathy, insight. And the entire show of the Met was to make the argument that this sculpture was in fact all about white supremacy and wanting to keep blacks enslaved. The entire thesis of the show was preposterous. It argued that Wedgwood, who created the famous medallion, Am I Not a Man and a Brother, that was one of the great motivators of the abolitionist movement, that Wedgwood was in fact motivated by white supremacy and he really wanted to just show that the natural state of blacks was enslavement. Uh, these are perverse theses, and you can go to the Rice Museum in Amsterdam and you can read their wall text for Rembrandt's The Night Watchman. Go to the Art Institute of Chicago, where they eliminated their entire docent program because the docents were white. They haven't got around to everything yet, but they will if we allow them to. Yeah, I must say you wrote an excellent piece on that exhibition, that Met exhibition. I think it was in City Journal, wasn't it, a few weeks ago, which I found particularly powerful. And I fear you're right that you say this is an ongoing process. And I think the particular problem is, again, it, I mean, it's fine to have a view. I agree with you completely, a false view. It's wrong to interpret that work of art in that way. But the problem is that it's the way in which that view is being imposed as the orthodoxy and that it is becoming increasingly difficult to challenge that orthodoxy, isn't it? Or to express any opinion that's that diverges from that orthodoxy. People in arts museums that do not subscribe to the orthodoxy are terrified. They're all being canceled. They're being thrown out. Any board members that are not going along with the anti-racist mission are gone. New directors are being hired. Staff members are terrified. So yes, the orthodoxy is utterly pervasive. And so there's a, a culture of silencing the grant-making organizations, whether it's the Mellon Foundation and the Humanities or the National Endowment for the Arts or the Humanities. They are all demanding that these artistic institutions remake themselves as anti-racist organizations. Final question then, Heather, and it's an obvious one. It's in two parts. How far does this go and what can we do to stop it? You know, there are some hopeful people out there who say, you know, maybe we've hit peak woke. Maybe people are beginning to see kind of some of the absurdity of this and some of the damage that this is doing. Your book certainly doesn't give much room for hope. But how does this continue to unfold? And how do people like us, who as mindful as we are of all the problems that there are in American society feel this has gone way too far and needs to be rolled back. What do we do? How do we resist it? It goes as far as we let it. It will continue going as far as we let it. I talk in the end of the book of an oncologist, and I asked him, why aren't you standing up against the destruction of your profession? 
And he said, we need our jobs. We want our jobs. The whole system is going to have to collapse in 50 years and be rebuilt from the ground up. But right now, everything is being racialized. You know, when people start dying because the doctors are not qualified or the bridges start falling down because we're using race, not merit, to qualify our engineers. When white kids start getting shot in drive-by shootings, maybe it'll turn around faster than solar. But the way it gets turned around is for people to say, you can't scare me by calling me a racist. I've got the facts. Here's the facts. Facts are not racist. Standards not racist. You're not going to cancel me. And it's hard for people who are in those institutions. You say, you know, you and I, Jerry, are have somewhat of an umbrella over our heads. And those that are existing in woke institutions, it's much harder. But at some point, doctors, mathematicians, you know, neurologists, they're going to have to stand up as well and say, sorry, our labs are colorblind. We are not discriminating. We are hiring the best oncologists, the best neurologists. Do not accuse us of racism and do not require us to recouch our research in terms of how it improves racial equities. Studying cell signaling and nematodes is not about racial equity. It is about curing cancer. So we all have to stand up to this and stop being browbeaten into silence. Heather MacDonald, the new book is Race Trump's Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. Heather MacDonald, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Wonderful conversation, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks for joining me. Please tune in again next week when I'll have another examination of a major issue shaping the way we live. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye.